Monday, March 14th. You are listening to LA Podcast episode 217, Ass Cash or Grassley. Nobody <laughs> rides for free. I am Scott Frazier. Alyssa Walker is off this week taking a well-deserved vacation. And I am happy to say that I'm joined today by Rachel Reyes. And returning to the mic, we have Matt Tinoco. Good morning, Rachel and Matt. How are you doing? Good. Good. Good morning. <laughs> I have like a uh, half of one shot of espresso in me this morning. So um, very strong likelihood that I fall asleep midway through this record. But that is just the price that I pay for not being <laughs> prepared to do this. Look, I only have mint tea, so no caffeine in that. So we're we're wow. riding together, buddy. I... I pity you and admire you at the same time. You are <laughs> you are really riding the roughest wave. Um, today's show is a good one. We have updates on union negotiations. We have lots of talk about the mayoral race, as well as the uh, the current mayor who is apparently stuck in like the the revolving door of politics like he's gotten himself trapped in the revolving door uh so we're gonna talk about an update on his situation um as well as again some comments from local politicians about foreign policy matters that they clearly are very well versed in uh, before we get into all that, I just want to say a brief thank you to everybody who subscribes to this show. We are, of course, completely free and supported by people who volunteer a little bit of their money to help us keep going. If you want to do that, we are at patreon.com slash LA podcast. Uh, yeah, just a couple dollars a month. It helps us keep going and, and produce more and more shows for you. Um, before we get into the news today... Matt, do you want to get us started with an L.A. story from this week? Yeah, so last night I was thinking very hard about how I didn't have an L.A. story and what on earth should I talk about. But then uh, there was an enormous crash sound just outside of my apartment that was oh, everybody was okay. Yeah, but then there was a gnarly car crash right outside my apartment on Franklin Avenue. Um, which is a street that I've complained about. I've probably complained about it on the show before. Um, for whatever reason, between Normandy and Western on Franklin Avenue, it's called, it's a designated bike route. Uh, it would, it would, all official metrics would imply that it is a safe street. It is an extremely unsafe street. People routinely drive 55, 60 miles an hour on it. There's no crosswalk for half a mile, uh, only on the main streets on Western and Normandy, which are half a mile apart. And then yesterday, uh, a woman, I, I think what happened was rear-ended a parked car um, that was on the side of the street. Her SUV rolled. The other SUV that she crashed into crashed into a, an RV that's on the street. And just like carnage everywhere. She was okay. She climbed out of the car and nobody else was affected or like like nobody else was hurt in the crash. But it's just like, this is a street that I cross every day. And because there's no crosswalk, I run across the street, just like a ton of my neighbors do, including people who are much less physically able than me. There's senior citizens crossing the street. There's mothers with strollers crossing the street. Um, because to cro you cross over to like access Griffith Park, which is maybe about a quarter of a mile north of me. 
So you have a bunch of pedestrian traffic coming here and there, bad visibility. And then also the way the street is designed, you have a bunch of people parked on each either side running across the street. And also the speed of the street is like, I don't even know what the limit is. I think it's 35, but I think that's one of those old limits that hasn't been updated because people are absolutely, like I would expect the the 80 percentile number to be something like 40 or 45 on the street. Regardless, it's, because I know this this podcast has, uh, there's ears in, in Council District 4. The, the, the <laughs> difference between uh, now and the past is that Franklin used to be split between CD13 and CD4, where one side of the street was one district and the other side was the other. But now it's all CD4. So just, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm pretty sure I've already written on the record comments to the office. So there's more car crashes. They keep coming. Fra- I mean, Franklin is so so bad it's it is it's terrible um i actually very recently was um crossing near that stretch uh that exact stretch of franklin um with my partner and my baby and it was wild how like you have cars flying up and down the hill and literally unwilling to like even stop when they see somebody holding a no. baby <laughs> just like going around you into the center lane and it's like okay this is the condition for a head-on car collision or somebody just getting hit while they're crossing the street so uh one of yeah like you said one of the streets that the city puts forward as being somewhat safe and yet and yet like it's just it's just not um, there's some sharrows on it I don't think it's a, it's, it is an official bike route. And I met one of my relatively new neighbors a couple of days ago who also bikes. And he's, he said, I thought it was going to be a good street to bike on, but actually it, I, I got run off the road the very first time I did it. So now I'm just on the sidewalk, which is what I oh do on the, if I'm on my bike. Too. Sure. I go on the sidewalk on the street as like a very quote unquote seasoned cyclist. It's just not, it's just too scary. I don't want to do it. Sharrows, uh, the, the little painted bicycle and arrow on the side of the road that, that tells drivers this is where you go if you want to kill a bicyclist. <laughs> they should turn those into like little tombstones instead of arrows, just like painted. Uh, Rachel, what's your LA story for this week? Oh, well, I'm. That sounds very scary. Um, so I will try to. I would try to tell a less sad, scary LA story. Um, I I had one thing in mind, but actually I'm pivoting because I was also thinking back on what actually happened to me this week. And the most exciting thing that happened to me this week is I saw Ted Danson at the Country Mart. And Ooh, I, Mr. Mayor himself. <laughs> Mr. Mayor himself, Mr. Cheers. Um, I am obsessed with Ted Danson. Like He's great. I just... He's amazing. And um, I know he goes to the Country Mart all the time. And I've been there for months and I've never seen him. So I've just, it was like, you know, one of those divine moments, honestly. And I saw him walking through the courtyard in this white linen button down, wearing a mask, which I appreciated. And he went into farm shop, got a coffee and came out, still had his mask on, which again, I deeply appreciate as a worker. Mm-hmm. And he was just like walking around, enjoying the sun on his beautiful white hair. And I just, <laughs> it is beautiful. I don't know. I was just, it was like looking at, it was like looking at God a little bit. It felt great. <laughs> that was my only story. It was just very no. like, 
He's so cool. I wish I had a reason to talk to him. <laughs> Cheers to, to Ted Danson. What a, Cheers I, to I, Ted I just actually Danson. rewatched The Good Place, did a pandemic rewatch. He's, he's great. Nothing but respect for, for my Mr. Mayor. A hundred percent. My LA story is, I, I was all, I mean, I actually had a pretty good one from this week where I went up into the Silver Lake Hills with some friends, did sort of a walk um, around the neighborhood and actually saw a really glamorous looking coyote. Uh, mm. It was like the day, I think it was the day before all the P-22 sightings started in the neighborhood. Um and it's a shame that I didn't get a, a picture. So anyway, I, I'm ditching that as my LA story, despite that it is um, very sort of pastoral and and nice. And instead, I'm going to talk about garbage because hell yeah, <laughs> because I because I have a personality flaw. Um, so <laughs> um, at least one. A uh, few weeks ago on this show, I was talking about how I'm doing food waste tracking. Um, there was a story in the LA Times a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about state mandates in California that have changed the way that local governments have to manage organic waste recycling and also how they have to report it to the state. That sort of prompted me, I, I think about this a lot, every, every time I throw food out, um, which is, of course, incredibly common. I think the US uh, average US household throws out something like I want to say a quarter of the uh, of the food that they buy from the grocery store without using it. Um, I, I think about that every time I throw something out and and sort of just feel this. You feel kind of just dumb, right? Like it's it's pure waste. It's uh, it's so bad for both the environment and also a food system in which uh, food is just not distributed in an equitable. <laughs> or just way. Um, so I've been trying to think about how I can reduce that. And when I put that out here, um, we got actually a fair few comments from people listening. And thank you to everybody who shared either ways that they track their own food waste or their own experiences with trying to uh, to get rid of organic waste in a less detrimental way than sending it to a landfill in the, the city of Los Angeles. I actually learned in the last week, and this is my LA story, uh, that the city of LA is in response to the state regulations, which are a couple years old at this point. Um, they've been getting reports from the Department of Sanitation about what they need to do in order to come into compliance with this state law. And basically what I learned was, although my comment before was that, oh, I've never had a green bin in six or seven different apartments I've had in LA, despite that that is at least notionally a requirement for uh, multifamily residential even if I did have that, you actually cannot dispose of organic waste in those, which I, I can't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't know because I've never had one. <laughs> um, can you, can the, you spell that out? Because what is, what is the green yeah. can for then? I thought it was for like, is there a distinction between food waste from my refrigerator and like grass clippings from my lawn that I don't have? I think but there want? is, right? Great. It's a great question um, because 
Right. What is this green can for? It turns out that, yes, there is a distinction between what comes out of your garden or your yard and what comes out of your refrigerator. The the green cans are only for grass trimmings and like branches. That's basically all you can put in there. There's an exception made for organic waste that comes from your own garden and has not been cooked or partially eaten or anything like that. So if you were basically mm-hmm. pulling stuff directly from your garden and throwing it straight into the trash, uh, then you could put it in the green <laughs> bin. I mean, it's it's um, truly astonishing. Like, especially if you go to, I feel like almost any other major West Coast city that you can think of, they've all been doing organics uh, diversion from landfills decades, it feels like. Like every time I go to Seattle or San Francisco or Portland, like it's sort of just taken for granted that these things are are an option. And yet in LA, we have the Department of Sanitation now delivering this report saying, okay, we need to actually do this. They're claiming that the city is a leader on, um, on landfill diversion, largely due to the city's recycler uh, program and also the executive order, I believe, from Mayor Eric Garcetti that that is about diversion from landfill. No real um, evidence that those are having the effect of making us a leader in this space at this point. Um, it is just sort of programs that exist. But now what they're saying is there is an existing pilot that allowed organic waste to be put in green bins at 18,000 residences. Of course, the city of LA is enormous. There are 4 million people in the city. So 18,000 homes is a tiny number. Um, And actually, by the end of this year, they are required to bring that number up to 750,000 households. (laughs) So... um, how? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll actually keep up with tracking this one because I I do find it fascinating, but that seems like a pretty substantial lift. As a matter of fact, their mid-year number is 40,000. So, uh it's it's anticipated to go from in March currently 18,000 households in June 40,000 households and in December 750,000. It's a real um it's a real conundrum. <laughs> so I'll I'll keep I'll keep up with that one uh and we'll try and keep tabs on the city's progress in in allowing for organic waste diversion. And please if you have uh if you have experiences doing this in the city of LA or other local cities, let me know. I'm I'm very interested to hear how this has been going. Well, uh, let's start the news for the week. We have another update actually from a story that we covered with Rachel last year. This was in episode 183, Sludge Report. We talked about union negotiations for Food for Less workers and how those workers had secured a really nice uh, clause in their contract tying their their raises to the so-called big contract that we we alluded to in passing. That is now under negotiation. We want to check in with Rachel, our labor 
correspondent on how things are going, Rachel. <laughs> what what is the what is this big contract and who's affected by it? Yes. Yeah, so the big contract comprises the big name supermarkets that we all know and love are unionized um, brothers and sisters and everyone in between at Ralph's, Albertsons, and Vaughn's Pavilions. Um, these are the biggest unionized uh, grocery stores in the U.S., UFCW, um, is the union that represents these workers. Um, and yeah, uh, the the contracts for UFCW nationwide um, are massive, but here in LA, they cover 60,000 uh, grocery workers, which is a large, <laughs> a large number of workers. That's a huge number. Yeah, tens of thousands of employees. Clearly, there's a lot on the line as the negotiations uh, continue. Are they proceeding? What What is the latest news coming out about the discussion that the sides are having on these contracts? Yeah, so negotiations started in January of this year, um, and the contract actually expired last Sunday. Um, and both sides did not come to an agreement. Um, there are many things that uh, the workers were seeking with this contract, um, but of course, wages are the number one issue still because folks are not getting paid enough. That's true across industries, but you know, we're still in a pandemic and speaking specifically to our essential workers who work at grocery stores, these workers were seeking an extra $5 an hour. And <laughs> Kroger um, and all of the other, um, all of the other corporate bosses came to the table with an increase of 60 cents an hour. <laughs> 60 cents. That's what they offered. <laughs> So uh, in terms of um, in terms of what's on the table, of course, the pay is a big thing. Um, and I want to come back to that in a second because those numbers are kind of terrifying. Um, but what what else are they talking about? What what are other things that are because obviously grocery workers have been put through a lot during the pandemic. We know uh, in the city of Los Angeles, they underwent things like um well, they were getting hazard pay. They were get where they were supposed to get hazard pay. They were supposed to get a right of return um, if they were laid off. Things like that. Are are any of those concessions being sought by UFCW now, or what are the other hot button issues for them? Right. So you always, you know, you always uh, when you're negotiating these contracts, you're not trying to get less, right? You're always trying to keep exactly what you have um, and get and get more. Um, and outside of COVID, health and safety is always up there, top three issue, especially in grocery stores, right? People who work in the deli are working with knives and other extremely sharp objects. There are so many ways that one could slip and fall in a grocery store. So health and safety is definitely up there. Um, but, you know, also there has been a lot of violence from the public, frankly, during the pandemic. A lot of these grocery workers were getting yelled at, spit on, uh, physically assaulted as well. That was something we've seen for the last two years now. Sadly, the public has been getting more aggressive with these workers. Um, so that's also, it's also a health and safety issue, right? It's not just, you know, your environment 
you're picking up a picking up a spill because someone broke a jar of pickles, but you're also getting you know yelled at by the public. Um, so there's a lot of different issues that workers are trying to you know, uh, fight for. But I think at the end of the day, the reason why wages are so top of mind is because so many Kroger workers in general, and I'm speaking specifically to Kroger because like Food for Less, Ralph's is a Kroger brand. Um, Mm -hmm. And Kroger is, you know, the fourth largest employer in this nation. So I will be talking about them a lot during this. A lot of Kroger workers are food insecure and housing insecure um, at a much higher rate than we see in LA and across the nation. So, I mean, $5 an hour will change people's lives and kind of help them stay afloat because a lot of workers are, are really not able to do that right now. I mean, there are also things that uh, I know you have been directly involved in, in particular, like the uh, Fair Work Week campaigning in, in LA is something that I think U- UFCW is still trying to fight for that sort of stability and scheduling um, mm-hmm. that is hard to come by if you're a grocery worker. Also, I mean, I think just last week or or maybe two weeks ago, you mentioned on the show... Uh, that a lot of the grocery stores have just been cutting staffing overall. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they're trying to get they're trying to get additional staff in stores to prevent things like uh, your LA story from a couple of weeks ago where your sister's <laughs> yeah. store had like an arm grab robbery of <laughs> wine. <laughs> like yes. um, yeah. Things that things that you would think are ultimately in the business's best interest, and yet, um, as you're saying, the, the sides are, are really far apart, and that's reflected well in the discussion about wages. I just want to say, like, sixty cents an hour—that's over five years, by the way. So not like immediately. Over five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the inflation for for this past year is like is like eight percent or something like that. So they're basically saying over the next mm. five years we would cut your salaries by five to eight percent, something like that, or more even. <laughs> I mean, it's probably more over that time. Yeah, mathematically it makes no sense. Um, but it's also just insulting um, because. We all know, and we have talked about this so many times on the show, the amount of profits that grocery store bosses have made um, and the ways that their pockets are being lined. Um, it's it's unbelievable the amount of wealth disparity that we are seeing between the CEOs of these grocery stores and their employees. It is obscene. It is violent. It is dangerous. And they're coming to the table with 60 cents over five years. Um, yeah. Like, I don't even know, like, why did you even bother? (laughs) Like, you couldn't even round it up to a dollar and make it seem like a little bit better than it is. But um, yeah, I just, that, that was unbelievable to me. This is um, like, as we look toward the future, I mean, the thing about the the big contract that attracts additional scrutiny, aside, apart from the sheer number of workers that it affects, um, is of course that it was uh, the reason the the contract disputes were the reason behind a still recent in local memory major grocery strike twenty years ago, mm-hmm. um, and now. UFCW is planning on holding a strike authorization vote for at least some of these, actually for the largest of these 
contracts, including Ralph Salbertson's, Vaughn's Pavilions. There are other uh, there are other stores, Stater Brothers and Gelson's, that are not directly mm-hmm. um, mentioned, but are part of the same round of negotiations. Um, what what would happen if there was a strike? What what does that look like for uh, for grocery stores locally? Yeah, so the strike authorization voting begins on March 21st. Um, and what would happen if they vote to authorize a strike? I I think judging from the way that past actions have gone, at least with Food for Less last year, we could be seeing um, specific asks to boycott specific stores at specific times. So like specific locations for a couple of hours, um, just having workers and community members, volunteers, um, just general supporters redirecting folks. Um, So right before they even come into the grocery store parking lot to park their car or before they walk in stopping them and explaining to them like, hey, you know, we're on strike. This is what um, the bosses are doing. We're encouraging you to shop elsewhere or we're encouraging you to come back at a different time. Um, And I think those are so effective because it really gets you know, you really get workers to talk to the public and talk to their customers. Like we're not being treated right. And I think for all of us who grocery shop in store, we can tell that stores are understaffed. We can tell that workers are overwhelmed by this. We can tell that they're being overworked. So for me, I think it's so imperative that folks really understand what these workers are going through. And I think it's such an easy way to connect the public to the struggle. Like, hey, even just in your own self-interest, wouldn't you like a store that's well-staffed and like you don't have to wait in line for longer than five minutes because all of the checkout lines are open and working. So, you know, I think there's there's always a lot of room for public support in these issues. And public and community support is really what helps workers get these wins at the end of the day, it's really important to have these strong coalitions. So if there is a strike authorization vote and they authorize a strike, if you can get involved, get out there. You can follow 770 on socials, Twitter, Instagram. They will post updates there as well. They also post updates on their website. So yeah, if you have like a free afternoon, if they decide to strike, you can always join the picket line. And of course, boycott if that's what workers ask for. The the boycott because I remember I remember when I was in I, I must have been in elementary school like two thousand three two thousand four is the year that I just googled, but there was a month long boycott and and where basically there was a picket line in front of almost every single of these grocery stores and mm-hmm. people just didn't just didn't go into Albertsons. Um, I'm curious, like how far are we right now between? Like, I, there's a step, right? So we, there mm-hmm. is a strike authorization. That's a step one. Then a strike is a step below a boycott. But like, can you spell out like what the sort of procedural, like how far are we from it? Like, what would it take to actually reignite a boycott? Which I imagine mm-hmm. holds a pretty um, deterrent memory in the, in the, I don't know, memories of the bosses, I guess. I don't know. But that's, I'm, I'm curious, like how far are we from a boycott? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that that, I mean, I think it's definitely up to the workers. To me, the the things that I was hearing, um, so I was on a presentation with um, Professor Peter Dreyer from Occidental and with local 770 members and workers. Um, and we were discussing this white paper, Hungry at the Table. 
and um, they they interviewed Kroger Company employees. Like I said, nationwide, it's folks from Ralph's, Food for Less, King Supers, all of their brands. Um, and some of the statistics that were coming out of that were really striking. Um, in my mind, it's a reason to to boycott for ever until they get five, ten dollars an hour more. Um, but I really think it's up to what the workers want and what they decide. Um, you know, the the actions that we saw last year with regards to food for less, the very targeted uh, boycotts were really effective. So I think that's probably the next step in my mind. They would try that again for this contract. And if that doesn't work, you know, I think it goes back to the workers to say like, are we going to ask for a public boycott? Because it is a large ask of the community in a lot of in, in, a, in a city where there's a lot of food deserts. Um, so I really think that, you know, it would be up to the workers to make that ultimate decision. I don't want to speculate, but I would say probably if they do vote to strike, we would see, I would assume we would see action similar to what we saw last summer with Food for Less. And beyond that, I don't know, we'd have to wait and see because I mean, some of these statistics, I'll just call them out. Um 78% of Kroger workers are food insecure. Um, 14% of Kroger workers um, are unhoused or have been unhoused in the last year. Um, and all of these numbers are well below, or well above, sorry, well above the national average. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, we have Rodney McMullen, Kroger CEO. Um, you know, when you do the math, he makes about $430,000 a week and his employees make $570 a week. Um, yeah. it's, it's violent. That's straight up violence. So to me, if the workers want me to boycott for six months, let's do it because, uh, this is so unsustainable for people. It is so unfair and our essential workers deserve more. I'm so glad you, you brought this up because I mean, and, and in the context of Los Angeles, where there's such a clear, uh, discriminatory distribu distribution of where grocery stores exist. Um, this is something that needs to be thought about because, yeah, I think that the the conditions under which the grocery store workers are are laboring is only going to make a strike that much more likely. There, I think there is certainly um, there's certainly a likelihood that the initial strike authorization is a useful tool to bring the corporate side back to the table. But when you have nationally uh, the, the largest of these chains forcing its workers into conditions um, in which they can't afford the basic necessities of life, including food, they work at places that sell right. food. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely... Um, it's absolutely wild that they cannot afford to feed their families um, with with some degree of certainty. That is, uh, I think, probably going to mean that the more that the corporate side drags their heels, we could see this escalate to a strike pretty, uh, pretty quickly. I mean, in, in relative terms, especially given that that 60 cent raise over five years over the, I mean, in the, in the context of our current inflation, where we're having mm -hmm. daily conversations about 
cost of living increases and like returning gas tax money to the public that these companies are saying we're actually going to just insult you with our wage increase offer. I think that will probably harden the the opposition to that stance on the the labor side as well. I do want to just say too uh, before um, before we move on, UFCW has actually accused various of these stores of bullying tactics, including. Um, well, Ralph's with surveilling and intimidating union uh, people engaging in union activity and mm-hmm. that Albertsons, Vons, and Pavilions are refusing to release information relevant to the negotiations. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of good faith attempts being made no. um, to, to close these gaps. It seems like quite the opposite. Um, that is... It's it's hard to express, you know, like when we have um, a, a strike like this, how impactful it will be to people across Southern California and especially to the laborers who are foregoing paychecks and, and are more likely to be uh, coming from communities that are low income. Um, yeah, I mean... Do you, do you think that there, based on the, the conversation you sat in on, do you think that there's a resolution that can be reached? Will, will the corporate side cave before we reach a strike? Probably not. <laughs> um, I don't think so, because like you said, they're already engaging um, in illegal tactics. They're also doing things like one-time bonuses to workers uh, to try and curry favor, which you don't don't do that. Um, but I don't know. I feel like it would have been in their best interest to show up to the table like, all right, okay, like hands up, like I'll give you your money. They're only asking for $5 an hour, right? It's not like they're asking um, for 10, for 15, which frankly they could for the amount of work that they put in, the amount of abuse that they had to put up with, the amount of psychological uncertainty, honestly, in those first few months when we had no idea how COVID was being spread, workers were coming home from work thinking that they had COVID like on them, taking clothes off outside of their house to go in, right? Like we had no idea. Imagine how scary that must've been for them. So they could also be asking for so much more. And $5 an hour to me seems so easy. You already gave it to them for hazard pay. So it would have made sense to me for bosses engaging in good faith, which we know they're not, to just say, sure, yeah, whatever you want, we'll do it. Let's not make this a big deal. But that's not what corporations are about. They're trying to keep themselves as rich as possible. And we see them continuing to do that. They're continuing to disrespect their workers. Um, So, you know, I will always be on the side of workers. I will listen to what they say. If they want to strike, if they want us out on the lines, we have to be there. We have to support them. Um, because this contract not only you know impacts the lives of 770 members, this contract is also a framework for other non-union grocery stores. This contract yeah. lifts up everyone. You know, People like my sister who work at grocery stores that are not union. Um, it helps them too. So I think it's incredibly important that 770 is continuing to fight as hard as it is, that workers are continuing to speak up as loudly as they are. Um, If, you know, they want us to show up to support them in whatever way they ask, uh, I encourage everyone to do that and just, you know, stay up to date, follow 770 across socials and 
Yeah, just keep up with the workers. Yeah, I mean, the the support the troops moment for for essential workers (laughs) seems like it has decidedly passed. And then you mentioned there are a number of major grocery stores now that are non-union, the share of groceries that are sold by places like Walmart, Target, um, Amazon's Whole Foods have all risen Mm -hmm. dramatically since the last strike in the early aughts. So... Uh, you famous union busters all. So um, th- yes. this is sort of a, a signal moment for, for union labor in this space. We want to move on to the city of Los Angeles and um, another communist apparatus. <laughs> See, uh, apart from organized labor, plaguing the city of Los Angeles, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, which... Um, uh, your your local red baiters at the LA Times <laughs> are um, are are cheerfully putting out a story, uh, sort of fanning the flames of uh, of discontentment over a uh, a DSA national foreign policy stance regarding NATO, which uh, the LA Times says is now becoming a uh, a key issue in the local elections for city council. Matt, what can you tell us about this story? What more is there to say than what you just said? Um, (laughs) Here are the facts. On March 10th, last Thursday, the Los Angeles Times published an article headlined, In LA's Election, Ukraine and the Role of NATO Emerge as Campaign Issues. It is a, the, the picture is a big picture of Mitch O'Farrell. Uh, it was published by David Zanheiser. Uh, and then it's, it's long. It's basically, I mean, basically what you just said, Scott, it's, it's taking a, a position that is held by DSA National, which I understand is not here in Los Angeles, really. I really don't know actually how all this stuff works. Um, but it's, it's just the, the position of DSA National is that the United States should not be a part of NATO because it is imperialist, et cetera. Um, and then the the article is, it revolves around the, the race in Council District 13. Mitch O'Farrell is the incumbent. And among, basically, I'm just going to read the, the, the fifth paragraph down, which I think kind of summarizes the whole thing. It just says, voters, O'Farrell said, should see a connection between these, quote, irresponsible unquote, stances and labor organizer Hugo Soto Martinez, a candidate backed by the DSA LA chapter. And and it's just, I don't, like, there's so many yeah. things in here, but it's a very long article that basically is going on about how there's a couple local candidates who have been endorsed by the local arm of a national organization that has a position on international relations and among the many things, one of the, like, there's a question, I, I know, I think Scott, you'll wonder about, like, if, like, in, in the thing that I just read, it's like, voters should, it, it's a fair question. It, O'Farrell is saying as a statement that voters should see a connection, but I'm not totally sure voters should see a connection. That actually just seems like a, that, that actually seems like, to me, it reads like the LA Times is just publishing what I mean, Mitch O'Farrell thinks voters should care about this is very different than voters do care about this. And it's, I think, worth noting that nobody, uh, no voters are quoted as saying, this is an issue that matters to me. It's just somebody who would like to win re-election saying, 
I would appreciate it if people cared about this thing that I think <laughs> makes me look better than my opponent, which that's not new. That's a, that is a serious dog bites man story, right? <laughs> Local yeah, elected would like, like to be reelected. It seems like every one of them is quoted saying they don't agree with DSA or they're troubled by the comments. Yeah, there's so many uh, there's so many different quotes from elected. If, like you you highlighted O'Farrell, Matt, but it seems like uh, David Zonizer went to everybody in city hall and and just asked them. Hello. Do you support NATO? <laughs> was that was that basically what happened? Yeah, NATO I mean, or DSA? <laughs> there's quotes from. I mean, my all-time favorite quote in here is from you know, Mr. Gilbert Cedillo, who because uh, the in the the CD one race was also brought up in here because I guess DSA is also or DSALA has also endorsed Eunice's Hernandez for CD one. But the the quote in here is from Cedillo. This is a quote. It just says DSA has every right to their position, I just fundamentally disagree with them, said Gil Cedillo. Quote, both Senator Bernie Sanders and I agree on this very fundamental Mm. core. It's my favorite is when Gil just says, well, my good friend Bernie Sanders has... (laughs) I'm assuming this is as a function of of Cedillo is a labor man and the the machine politics of labor just work like this. But uh, Sanders has the... Cedillo has the Sanders endorsement and he's really just really just milking it for all it's worth. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, a continued, like, so Mitch O'Farrell obviously is one of, if not the most interested person in pushing forth this narrative, as we can see in his his comments about uh, Hugo Soto Martinez. It's interesting to me because he has obviously a long history of sort of sparring with leftist organizations, including Ground Game, which was formed after an, a, an attempt to unseat him five years ago and and DSA as well. Um, I do kind of, I, I think it's worth contextualizing this. The The whole reason this story came to my attention, I saw it on, on Twitter uh, where David Zonizer was saying DSA responded to the Russian invasion by saying the U.S. should pull out of NATO and having no real knowledge of this, you know, not not being a, a DSA member at present and not knowing anything about their stances, I was like, oh, the way that this is worded makes it sound like a right-wing dictator invaded uh, another country. And in support of that, the DSA said, we we are giving this policy recommendation. Um, that's sort of the way that the tweet was worded in my mind. So I I went and I read the DSA statement, which actually is like, we made this statement back in you know 2021 and we stand by it. And the, the statement is actually considerably more nuanced than what, uh, well, it's certainly... Mitch O'Farrell would have you believe, and also I imagine um, the the number of city council members who were put on the spot to respond to this had no idea what they were actually responding to either. I imagine that none of them would support uh, leaving NATO anyway, but just to say <laughs> the rationale given here is, you know, you have Donald Trump who was saying, we're not doing anything for our NATO allies until they increase their military spending. NATO is actually fueled by a mechanism that says that 
2% of GDP is going directly to the military. It means nothing for the United States where we happily plug trillions of dollars into the military every year, but you have other countries uh, across the Atlantic where that has not typically been the case, including Germany, which in the wake of the Russian invasion has now said that they will meet that standard. This has sort of been met with uh, a, a very bizarre and I think we should say frightening, I will say frightening, nationalistic turn in the U.S. press where we're saying, oh, countries like Germany have woken up. You know, they've they've uh, come to come to Jesus, as it were. And now they're going to start remilitarizing in the way that the U.S. has been um, uh, militarizing itself over the course of, you know, the, the last century or so. Whether or not that's a policy goal you agree with says a lot about your politics, but it certainly doesn't say anything about whether or not you think that Vladimir Putin should be allowed to aggressively invade a country that is not a NATO member. I, I, I was reading this and I was like, if Mitch O'Farrell is concerned about what DSA says about NATO re-Ukraine, he should read something about what NATO has to say about NATO re-Ukraine. They're not going to do anything to stop the invasion uh, apart from transfer weapon systems, which is... <laughs> totally irrelevant to the U.S. being part of NATO. Anyway, um, all that to say that this is this is clearly red baiting, and it's something that we've seen before. Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether or not you guys have um, thoughts on whether or not this will be more successful in 2022 than it was in 2020 when uh, City Council Member David Rue tried to use the same tactics against Nithya Raman unsuccessfully. Do we think that this has uh, that has Ukraine changed this this calculation at all? Do you think? I mean, look, <laughs> I don't think that most voters care at all. I also don't think most voters are out here like Scott. You just had a really nice little paragraph moment explaining the ins and outs of NATO, what they are and are not doing. Like, I don't think most people like know. Could, could explain what NATO is. And that's not because they're like uneducated. It's just because they're getting up and going to work to like feed their families. They're trying to pay rent. They're trying to survive in this city. I'm not talking about other ones. I only know about this one where our city council was asked these ridiculous questions. Um, what a waste of their time. Sorry. Like if I was one of these council members, I would have said I'm actually focused on the <laughs> concerns of my constituents. I don't really have anything to say in the way of DSA national commenting on NATO. That's not in the purview of my job. And I think that that would have been a suffice answer without showing your yeah. entire ass about what you're trying to do. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think they should comment on it. I don't see the point. Um, and I really don't think that it's something voters care about. Like, talk to me about how you're going to make my rent cheaper. Talk to me about how you're going to improve our streets, make it safer for me to walk with my family. That's what voters care about. Um, and just say something like, we stand with all occupied and oppressed people. Just be very general. <laughs> they don't have to know everything. Just have a nice canned answer that doesn't make you sound mm -hmm. like a monster. That's all you have to do. 
I mean, the thing, so it's, to me, it's interesting because CD13 is really, really left. Like, it stands out on a map of Southern California, like a fucking neon sign. It's, it's, it's amazing that um, a a reactionary like Mitch O'Farrell, whose politics involve uh, forcibly removing poor people from a public park using near a thousand armed police, um, it has been able to hold on to power there so long. I, I, I'm also curious whether or not this, uh, this um, climate will actually affect the way people see local issues. I doubt it will. I, it, to me, it reads like he is playing for, like it's sort of like an insulting play for uh, the, the votes of people who immigrated to CD13 from mm. you know Central Europe, Central Asia. We have a, a fair amount of those, um, as well as from Thailand. Um, and I think that the sort of caricature of of immigrants from a lot of those places is that they have negative views on you know socialism, whatever. Um, but they're there now. They've been there for decades. And like I said, CD13 is very very left. Also. And CD1. I, I just want to, I just want to, yeah, and CD1. I just want to reiterate, like, Russia is ruled by a right-wing <laughs> dictator, not a socialist. And <laughs> the the people in Ukraine who, like, were overthrowing their government in 2014 in order to install democracy were probably not doing so in order for the dog-eat-dog, you're-gonna-die-without- healthcare version of democracy <laughs> that we have in the US, but something more similar to their neighbors in Europe who have the exact kind of policies that people in DSA have frequently uh, <laughs> advocated for. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not all of them, but some of them to be, to be sure. So um, in, in any case, it's, it's a, an interesting and uh, I think it's an interesting foray by city council members into the realm of of international <laughs> politics and sort of revealing of either how little they understand them or how cynically they're willing to deploy them. Rachel, you also mentioned that like an appropriate statement would be just to say we we stand with oppressed people and unoccupied peoples across the globe. Actually, it's funny that you should say that because the city of LA has two different resolutions regarding national boycotts. One is standing with uh, the the residents of Ukraine and and giving support to them in their uh, in the their fight against the occupi- occupying forces of Russia, um, and indicating that the city of LA is going to look into ways to divest and boycott any companies owned by Russian nationals, uh, while at the same time, so this is sort of the problem with the whole we stand with occupied peoples, <laughs> uh, they are pushing forward a resolution condemning Ben & Jerry's. Yes, Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream Ooh. company, for, uh, for engaging in a boycott of Israeli business interests in the, uh, in the months following the most recent Gaza war. What? Very helpful. <laughs> just, that's that's what um, we need to be doing. 
It's this. This is actually an interesting moment, I think, just because we have. Uh, so we have city council members saying that Ben and Jerry's is discriminating against the state of Israel and um, and Israeli nationals based on their national origin. And also that they want to boycott Russian nationals explicitly based on their national origin. What is happening? I mean, do either of you feel like this is a distinction that makes sense? To me, it seems completely like a distinction without a difference. I mean, I think the thing that I think about in all of this, whether that's the two examples you just mentioned, Scott, or or this article that was just published in the LA Times with regards to elected officials making a show about DSA's position on NATO, which is extremely irrelevant to the voters of Los Angeles. Um, it's just, it's, they're just soundbite media things. And like, there's no relevance other than the press release that the elected officials do for whatever, like six of their donors who this is a pet important issue to them. And like, other than that, it's just not, like it goes to just the proverbial distance between elected officials and like the actual people who live here, which is very much like what Rachel just said. Like the issues of the people of the city of Los Angeles are that our transportation system is this privatized free for all, Mm -hmm. that the housing costs are profoundly high and that there's people dying on the street. And like, that's, that is what in a municipal election is like, I mean, that's what's at, at top of mind. I don't really care what Mitch O'Farrell thinks about international relations. It just, I just don't. Louder, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, this is, uh, it's, it would be nice if they stopped, but they are not going to stop. I mean, just as a, as a reminder, um, you know, Eric Garcetti has a very spotty record on, on foreign policy, um, which is is relevant to his career aspirations. Apparently, um, he obviously invited the IOC to to come here to bring their cadre of vampires in with us. He also welcomed Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman here when he was doing that big charm offensive in 2018, which was let's say about six months before. Uh, Salman ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and it was you know, in the middle of Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen and turning it into hell on earth. And there was also that thing where the mayor's fund received millions of dollars from the Qatari embassy, and that was at the behest of Eric Garcetti. Uh, So foreign policy, obviously not the um, city of Los Angeles's strongest foot to stand on. And yet I think that we can say with some certainty that they are going to keep doing this. Um, Well, speaking of Garcetti and foreign policy, let's check in with the still mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, and how he is doing in his bid to get the hell out of Los Angeles. (laughs) Let's see, Rachel, what do you got for us on this? Yes. So the headline this week uh, is that Iowa Senator... Republican, of course. Chuck Grassley has placed a hold on Garcetti's nomination to be the next ambassador to India. This news broke on Thursday by Politico. I was at work. I let out a little gasp. 
and a little sweet. <laughs> I couldn't believe that this was happening. <laughs> so uh, Politico reported that Grassley had sent a letter to Mitch McConnell, uh, the man himself, objecting to Garcetti's nomination um, and that Grassley's office is investigating claims that Garcetti did in fact know his chief of uh, his chief advisor, Rick Jacobs, was a serial sexual harasser. Grassley said his office has been in touch with whistleblowers um, who, if what they say is true, means uh, that Garcetti lied through his teeth to the U.S. Senate, which I'll remind you all is illegal. That's, uh, yeah, it's not something that you're supposed to do. <laughs> it's not legal to lie and under oath. <laughs> lying under oath is yeah, bad. No, not, not, yeah. like, not like it's ever really stopped anyone. Um, Matt, they had a, a response from from mayor's office, right? Yeah. So this is the this is the response the public facing office of Los Angeles mayor's response to the reporting, and I'm just going to quote it. Uh, so quote start now. Repeating a malicious falsehood will never turn a lie into the truth. The mayor has testified under oath multiple times, including before the U.S. Senate, and stands by his testimony unequivocally. He absolutely did not witness, nor was he informed, of any of the behavior being alleged. The mayor has spent the better part of his life advocating aggressively on this issue. And had he been aware of any such behavior, he absolutely would have acted to stop it. Period. End quote. (laughs) Okay. He doesn't really, like, it just seems like he cannot believe that this it just seems like he can't believe that this is potentially going to sink what he uh, he's very clearly like a legacy minded person does not seem like he can wrap his head around this being something that is potentially mm-hmm. going to torpedo his legacy right like that that's sort of the sense i get he just seems like he's more outraged by these uh, by the, the accusation that he knew something about what was going on in city hall every time it feels very performative in a way I mean, malicious falsehood is quite the statement. But I think going further than what you just said, the thing that quite unsettles me about this is because it's also not... Like, obviously, if Garcetti perjured himself, they just have to just go all in on, well, I wasn't... Everybody else is perjuring themselves. Like, they have to Mm -hmm. just completely warp reality to believe whatever they're true. That makes some sense. What, What to me really unsettles me is when it comes back to, like, the White House statement and, like, the Joe Biden administration, which is also still backing Garcetti's nomination. I get that there's an element of they probably, like, I mean, I don't know how Washington politics work. They probably can't read. It would look, it would be ugly if like you had to nuke one of your ambassador nominations, but I think it would probably be uglier if your ambassador nomination gets charged for perjury. I don't know. Regardless, uh, in the Politico article, the the White House's response is this. I'm also just going to do exactly what I just said and quote it. Quote, Mayor Garcetti has been clear that he takes any allegations of harassment very seriously and has made clear this type of misconduct is unacceptable in his office in any form. He has also said that he never witnessed this behavior nor was told about it prior to the litigation. The president has confidence in Mayor Garcetti and believes he'll be an excellent representative in India. Which just sigh. I mean, like how... how uh, soon after the the White House gave a similar statement about Neera Tandon heading up the general or the government accountability office, 
did they reverse themselves and just pull her nomination? It just seems like at a certain point, it becomes more of a liability to the White House than it's worth. If it's actually going to become like this huge conflagration, mm-hmm. yes, you know, he's he's your ally. Yes, he's somebody that you can trust, uh, especially if you're an abuser. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're a kid. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I don't want to get sued. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but, but like how much are you willing to put your ass on the line for Eric Garcetti, especially if it seems like he's, um, if it's going nowhere anyway, if it's going to become a, a months long story, do you want that to be a story when you could instead be uh, President Biden who's staring down Vladimir Putin? It just seems like it's not, it's not in your best interest if you're Grandpa Joe at this particular moment. We had the conversation about whether or not we thought that Garcetti would be leaving and you and Alyssa both said he'd be gone by February. And I was like, I think he's going to be here at the end of his term. <laughs> so uh, my womp, womp. faith, my faith or lack of faith or whatever you want to call it is so far paying off. Um, and we will, of course, I mean, like, what what can we say? We're, we're stuck with him until somebody else agrees to take him off our hands. I don't really think that we should be sending Eric Garcetti to do high-level diplomacy in India, especially um, as the forces of the U.S. political structure sort of move us into a new Cold War. Um, Not really the guy that I would want in a high-pressure situation, but we'll see. Um, Matt, what can you tell us about the, the case, the civil case that still is awaiting to be, awaiting to be heard? Yeah, so distinct the Garcetti ambassadorship and everything, the sort of the the under the the lawsuit Garza v, versus the city of Los Angeles by Matthew Garza, one of uh, Garcetti's former LAPD bodyguards, the sort of inciting the, the sort of inciting incident that has made a lot of this public. It was a lot of the information we know now is from depositions taken in that case. Um, it's just currently stayed. There's not supposed to be really any pending action until April 22nd when there's just a status conference scheduled at Stanley Moss Courthouse in downtown. Um, So yeah, all is quiet on the case front. As far as uh, Garcetti's nomination, um, according to the LA Times, I don't know how the Senate works, the US Senate works, so I can't tell you how Senate rules are, but according to the Los Angeles Times, Dakota Smith reporting, it's basically, uh, Smith reported that uh, when it comes to Garcetti's nomination, he cannot be nominated on the consent calendar now where the sort of just the the Senate would approve a ton of different items at once on consent, on unanimous consent. Um, So even if like for him to be nominated at this particular moment with Grassley's objection and hold, um, there would have to be a roll call vote, which would mean that the entire United States Senate would have to vote on whether or not they think Eric Garcetti wants, should be the next U.S. ambassador to India, which that's a problem for Chuck Schumer to work out. But it's just our boy, Eric, at the center of this, which I just, Eric from Encino, just, I can't, I, it just warms my heart that he's at the center <laughs> of this. It's like the, the, the Paul Rudd meme. Who would have thought? Look at us. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so ending today's show, we want to talk about the people who are seeking to fill in once Eric departs. Those are among them Karen Bass, Joe Buscaino, 
Mike Fewer, current city attorney, Kevin DeLeon, and of course, Rick Caruso. Uh, not all of them were in attendance, but last week there was a candidate forum on homelessness. Matt, you watched this. Uh, what can you tell us about how this forum proceeded and and what the candidates had to say about the city's most pressing issue? Yeah, so if you remember a couple of episodes ago, after a different candidate forum, one of the things Alyssa said was that the debate, the forum, whatever it was, basically ended up being a sort of, uh, I mean, it was just like the candidates were listing off the bullet points on their website, which was very yeah. unsatisfying to watch and there was little to no new information gone. The reason I really liked this particular candidate forum was because there was a sliver, there were there was more new information to me, a like former reporter who covered uh homelessness full-time for a local broadcast station. But like, it's it's just, there was there was more detail there. And I think that's largely because of the hosts of it. The host was the LA Provider Alliance to End Homelessness, which is basically a, a it's, it, it's, an, it's an affiliation of the largely, like of, of the mostly nonprofit social service agencies that are closest to the people who are outside, who are doing the sort of administrative work of providing services, whatever that means. At the same time, this the forum did not include the perspective of unhoused people themselves or the end users mm-hmm. of the system. It was really something that was only um it was it was it was the, the audience was basically the administrators of the of the system. But like practically the administrators and the service workers and social workers and the people who are working in the homeless services system know a lot more about homeless services than it would appear to be the candidates, which is which is I think I don't. I wrote about this in the in the LA newsletter. There's a link to it in the show notes, and we'll rehearse it here. But like, there were a bunch more details that I think, for the first time, we've actually kind of seen, or the first time I've kind of seen, like differences between the candidates on this issue. Yeah. What were I mean? So, what were some of those differences? I think that you had noted that, in particular, Kevin DeLeon and Karen Bass were kind of asked about. That, that that have uh, first of all, they're the two leaders in the race according to the yeah. most recent poll, and second of all, um, they have sort of tried to position themselves as having a more aspirational as opposed to uh, fear based approach to being the mayor. And those aspirations were the subject of some question during the forum, right? Yeah, both of them. And these were uh, I'm going to play up here over the next couple of minutes, I'm playing the questions, not the answers, because the answers didn't really have much substance in them. But the questions, in this case, both of these questions are were asked by Dr. Valicia Adams-Kellum, who directs uh, St. Joseph's Center, which is one of the main service agencies in West Los Angeles. And, and I just, well, I'm just going to play the first one here, which was uh, addressed towards Karen Bass. You have called for aggressive emergency action to respond to homelessness. Among other things, you plan to house 15,000 people by the end of year one. But LASA reported that in 2020, our current rehousing system helped 20,690 people move into permanent housing and provided interim housing to another 27,325 people experiencing homelessness. How would you go about housing 15,000 people? And if we were already housing over 20,000 people a year across the county, how does your plan to house 15,000 people in the city 
count as an aggressive emergency action. I'll get to Baz's answer in a second, but just to explain a little bit more about what's in Dr. Adams Kellum's question, um, those numbers that she's referring to are the raw numbers of people who are either housed or sheltered by the Los Angeles County Continuum of Care, basically the system that LASA is the sort of top of. Um, and, and just to go over those numbers again, it, in 2020, there were about 21,000 people across L.A. County who were moved into permanent housing, meaning that 21,000 people became a new tenant in a rental unit with a lease. And then on top of the 21,000 people who became a tenant through the homeless services system, there were about another 27,000 people who found a spot in a shelter. So like a, that could be like a bridge housing site or a project room key room especially because this was those are 2020 numbers. Now, to go to Karen Bass, if you go on her website, and there's, there's lots of press coverage about this too because the PR machine works in not very mysterious ways, Bass's campaign's pro, uh, promise is to house 15,000 people in her very first year. But like the first time, when, when that first made it to me, like I already knew that that was less than the actual number of people that the Los Angeles County Continuum of Care already houses in a year. So- in the first 90 seconds of Bass's answer, she just completely dodged that, the claim that how, how can you say, like Dr. Adams Callum's question, the crux of it is like, how can you say 15,000 is bold when it's like marginally less than what our system already does? And then here's, here was just the little, the only time she acknowledged that point in her rebuttal. Well, uh, first of all, 15,000 certainly doesn't mean lower than the number that we have now. It means in addition Bold leadership is very important. That's exactly what we need. And that was the only reference. So it's just 15,000 people in addition to the 21,000 people already housed. Um, And I reached out to the campaign to try and further clarify, but they sent me to voicemail after just one ring. And Matt, you said that there was a similar question asked of Kevin DeLeon, right? Yeah. And just remember that Kevin has made a big to-do about how he wants to build 25,000 units of Uh, new housing for people who are currently homeless. I'm going to play the question now. Uh, And and the question is also Dr. Adams Kellum of St. Joseph Center. Among other things, you plan to create 25,000 new housing units by 2025. But the California Housing Partnership estimates that 499,430 low-income renter households in Los Angeles County do not have access to an affordable home. How would you create 25,000 new units? And if we need almost 500,000 units of affordable housing in the county, how does your plan for 25,000 units count as bold? So again, I'm not going to play the response because the question here is much more important. The 500,000 number is the estimate by the California Housing Partnership. Um, which is a statewide affordable housing policy shop that estimates how many families in Los Angeles County would qualify for subsidized housing if it were available. Basically, if a household's income is below a certain threshold, then they qualify for housing assistance. The problem we have right now is that the amount of assistance available is just vastly less than the amount of need. So there's hundreds of thousands of households that could qualify for a spot in a Section 8 uh, a spot in a subsidized unit or or have a Section 8 voucher. But there's really only hundreds of those vouchers available at any given moment. And many of those vouchers are already reserved or they're, uh, they're reserved for people who have been on a wait list for years and years and years, not the vast mm-hmm. majority of people who have needs. Now, just to go back to Kevin, because he is the mayoral candidate, where 
um, this question was asked of him. He's talked a lot about how he wants 25,000 new units, but like 25,000 subsidized units, as Dr. Adams Kellum was making the point of, it's just, it's just a small drop in the bucket, which like, sure, 25,000 units is like fine and dandy for the 25,000 people who eventually get to move into those units. But it's just, it's just a drop in the bucket. And like, this goes to the point that was issued over and over in this forum is that the, all of the people running for mayor are saying that I am the bold leader of choice. We need bold leadership. And, and it's particularly that word bold, like they love saying bold. They said it dozens of times over the course of this forum. But then when it comes time to like justify their boldness, we get these very milquetoast policy proposals, which is what the two questions that we've played here were, they were just drawing attention to that I think is important to remember because their answers weren't that good. I mean, there's like, uh, there's part of me that feels like the boldness is really just a it's not about knowing the ins and out of the outs of the policies. I actually feel having listened to that clip from Karen Bass, I, I feel like even more like that number was just plucked out of midair as opposed yeah. to being based on anything substantive. Um, it seems more like the boldness is just about an attitude of, um, of being willing to uh, be combative with the mm-hmm. with the existing structures. I mean, like outside of the context of this forum, we also had Rick Caruso put forward little infographics about his plan, where he says he's gonna uh, he's gonna talk to construction experts and he's going to stop city council from standing in the way. And it, it, like all of this just sounds completely empty. Um, I actually thought Steve Lopez of the LA Times was was pretty well on target a couple weeks ago when he wrote a column saying everything that's been saying in everything that's been said in the uh, mayoral race so far about homelessness we've heard dozens of times over and now to your point Matt it's like also these proposals are are actually below what's being achieved which which indicates that there's not a great deal of familiarity with uh, what is currently going on, let alone whether or not it's actually working. Um, did you have any other major takeaways from the from the debate that you want to share with us? I think your point that there's not a lot of familiarity with what's going on on, on the part of our political candidates is, is the, it's the last thing I want to highlight. Um, but there is, towards the very end, there was a lightning round where candidates were just asked whether or not they agree with a statement or disagree with a statement or neither agree nor disagree with a statement. And and the, the statement that was presented, I'm just going to quote it, was whether or not they would, quote, support a progressive fee or tax to fund programs that prevent and address homelessness, unquote. That's a very, uh, that's all that was said. And so to my mind, when I first heard that, this to me means something like Measure H which is the quarter cent sales tax that is already, that voters approved uh, a couple of years ago and is like, by the way, is set to expire. So I, I almost interpreted this as a question to say, would you support a measure H renewal? Um, that is not what the candidates said um, or interpreted as such. And I just, let me, I'll let you hear it for yourself. They didn't like being asked this question. So this is, it starts with Mike Fear and goes to Kevin DeLeon. I, I do, do want to say, is this is in reference to the proposed initiative that would attempt to do those things. I do not support that initiative. Uh, if it's a different question, let me know. So this is a broad. So I'm going to add, I'm going to start this over again and ask you at each to just say agree, disagree, okay. or neither agree or disagree if you're not sure. 
Okay. Um, and that could be because of something in the question. Um, can, I, can I, can, can I say one thing? I think, how about now? I think the question, let's, let's cut to the chase. The question is, are you <laughs> a- asking the question in its purest form or are you asking it related to United Way's proposal? That's the question that folks want to know. It does not mention a specific proposal. So lots of things here. The first one is just that the proposal that Mike and Kevin are all concerned about is one, it's not by the United Way of Greater Los Angeles. This is a proposal that's called United to House Los Angeles, which the meat of the proposal, it's currently getting, gathering signatures, right? Like they're, they're getting signatures right now to try and place it on, I believe, the November ballot um, of 2022. Um, the proposal is just that it would it would levy a one time tax on real estate transactions that are more than five million dollars, like a five million dollar plus real estate transaction. And I believe it's spitballed to raise eight hundred and seventy five million dollars a year because there's an enormous number of really high dollar real estate transactions in Los Angeles County. Regardless, like, like I said, it's not a United Way proposal. Kevin said United Ways, but United Way hasn't even endorsed the proposal yet. Um, their board hasn't voted on it is what I was told. But then through the remainder of the forum, uh, Kevin, Mike, and then even Karen Bass all started referring to this proposal as the United Way proposal, <laughs> even though it's, it's not, it's not, it, and that, but it's just like, it's just it's wrong. Unite, unite it's like, here, right? It's Unite Here is, is one of I the think words you, behind I it. I think, yeah, I think they're one of the organizers, but it's just like, you just, you just, <laughs> it, it, like, like as far as the agreement statement, um, Karen Bass was the only person who said she would support a fee or tax to raise money for homeless services. Kevin DeLeon and Mike Fuhrer both said they neither agree nor disagree after what you just heard a second ago about them waffling about, well, maybe in theory, but not this one, whatever. But they they finally said when when they reset the whole thing and re-asked, they neither agree or, nor disagree. And then Joe Buscaino, of course, just said, no, I don't support that. We already have enough money. And... Yeah. I love that. Bold That's leadership. Bold, bold leadership. Uh, <laughs> I neither agree nor disagree. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And the, the, I, I think kind of in summation of a bunch of different things that we've talked about today, it's like, why are these people trying to weigh in on stuff happening thousands of miles away when they can't actually wrap their head around the policy proposal and whether or not it's put forward by one of the city's largest unions or one of the city's largest homeless providers? What, like, how are we expecting them to really grapple with the fine, finer points of, of uh, foreign policy when, when domestic and indeed local policy seems beyond the reach of their (laughs) abilities. Uh, That is pretty much all we have time for this week. You have been listening to episode 217 of LA Podcast. Thank you so much to everybody listening. Thank you, Matt and Rachel, for hosting with me. Matt for editing. Uh, Brian Holmes, our producer, as always. And a big thank you to everybody in our Sepulveda past, the subscribers at patreon.com slash LA Podcast who help us keep going. Uh, We also have a newsletter where Matt wrote more about the Homelessness Forum. If you want to check that out, it is thelapod.com slash newsletter. We will be back with a new episode next week. Bye.